This is a Serious Zero podcast, episode 5, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sira episode 5. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. In today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics. The commandment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam to begin spreading the message of Islam the biographies of the 10 companions promised paradise radiyallahu anhum the conversion of Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anhu the difference between Mecca and Medina surahs the first 3 years of revelation and the difference between sharia and fiqh so stay tuned for serious sira episode 5 having said that also, the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah and I am your Lord so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one ummah and they were a magnificent... Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. All right, and when we left off last week, we were talking about the beginning of the revelation to Prophet Muhammad and we spoke about his daughters, his children. We spoke some about some of their lives and then we spoke about some of the fitness surrounding the story of Fatima uh, and then we went into the beginning of the revelation to Prophet Muhammad and how Angel Jibril came to him and brought him the message from Allah and how Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he then went on to he ran home to his wife Khadija and then she took him to her cousin Waraka ibn Nawfal and he confirmed that the <clears throat> what he what had happened to him was an nawus or Jibril basically the spirit that brings revelation to the mess to the messengers and he confirmed that he would uh Wadaka confirmed that he would support him if he had the ch- if he were to stay alive long enough to see his people drive him out okay so we're going to continue and pick up right from there inshallah getting right into it all right so we spoke about how the first this first uh revelation was surah al-iqra and after that the revelation ceased for a while it uh it didn't come you know it didn't come for some time but in some scholars say it may have been a couple of days like like three days some say three weeks some say three months i think three months is probably a little bit too long most most likely it's probably three uh weeks is probably the most likely the most likely um option that happened so for a couple of weeks the um, jibril did not come back to him with a message 
during this period that there's no revelation coming, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, he began to think that maybe he was going mad or maybe he was a fortune teller. And these are two types of people that he didn't like very much, uh, people who basically told fortune or soothsayers and stuff like that. And while we're on this topic, um, just really quick about soothsayers and fortune telling. I meant to say this in um, the basic Islam class I teach on Saturdays, but I'll probably get to that, inshallah. That fortune telling is not permissible in Islam, and we have to be careful of it, whether it is um, going to a gypsy looking in a crystal ball or referring to uh, your horoscope in the newspaper. Well, now it's online probably now. Going online, look at your horoscope online or believing the Chinese zodiac or any of that stuff. You know, all that stuff is equivalent to going to a to a fortune teller. And there's authentic hadith, and I'm not quoting, quoting word for word, but I, I know I, I'm pretty close there. That whoever goes to a fortune teller, you know, their prayer is not accepted for 40 days. Now, even though if you do go to a fortune teller or read a horoscope or anything and your prayer is not accepted for 40 days, you're still obligated to carry out the function of the prayer. Because if you don't carry the function of the prayer, then you receive sin for not praying. Just that your prayer, you know, is not accepted. So... Given that I don't think anyone anyone wants to have their prayer not accepted for 40 days, it would behoove us to avoid these things, uh, fortune-telling, horoscopes, zodiac, and all that kind of stuff. Just a little offside, and I just want to make sure I throw that in, inshallah. All right, now going on. Now, during this time, Prophet Muhammad was concerned that maybe he was going crazy, or maybe people might label him as a soothsayer or something like that, or a fortune-teller. For a fortune teller, and he would he would talk to Wadaka ibn Naufal, his wife's cousin, about what, how he was feeling, and he and his uh, Wadaka confirmed him or counseled him to be patient and not worry about it so much that he is that he is a prophet and that the angel will come back to continue the message as Allah as Allah decrees. But then after a couple of weeks or days, as we mentioned, you know, scars on sure it was a, whether it was a few weeks or a few days. Uh, I can't say not sure. They disagree. That's the proper word. They disagree whether it was a few weeks or a few days or maybe even a few months. Eventually, the revelation did did come again. And Jibril, salam, and Jibril came to him with the next part of the revelation, which was to get up and and spread the message to other people. Now, he brought us to him uh, the beginning of Surah Al-Muddathir, which is the 74th Surah of the Quran. قال الله تعالى في كتابه بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها المدثر قم فأنذر وربك فكبر وثيابك فطهر ورجز فهجر ولا تمن تستكثر ولربك فاصبر These first uh, five to seven verses that came to him were, were advising him that it's now time for him to get up and begin to spread the message to others. So the translation of these verses, uh, the interpretation of the English meaning is, uh, in the name of Allah, most, benefic- most beneficent, most merciful, O you who's, cover- who's covered up, arise and warn. Uh, Kum means stand up. Like, it comes from the word Iqam, it means stand up. Kum, stand up. It's a command to stand. Kum fa'angdir, stand up and warn. In your Lord, glorify. And this verse is an interesting thing. And uh, I heard this mentioned by um, Numan Ali Khan, actually. This verse right here, 
I forgot the English word for it, but basically, it reads the same thing forwards and backwards. The, the letters as they are. You ever, I know she heard, um, we heard, did this in grade school. A man, a plan, a canal, Panama. If you write that word out, flip it one way or the other, it means the same thing backwards and forwards. There are other, several other words like that. I forgot what they're called. But if anybody remembers the English phrase for that, that's fine. But what Abaka Fakabir is 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 like that also. It reads the same forwards and backwards. And yes, one of those grammatical, grammatical, um, amazing grammatical things about the Quran. And Allah knows best. Continuing on, then Allah says, and and your clothing purifier. Purify your clothing. And this is both a, a literal meaning and a more um Figurative meaning, meaning that in order for, first of all, to worship Allah, of course, we must make sure our body is pure, as well as the clothes and the place that we're praying in. And also, for the Prophet Muhammad, he had to, and all of us as well, we need to also purify our insides, which means trying to correct our ba- our behavior and our character to the best of our abilities. And avoid uncleanliness. Do not confer favor to acquire more. Meaning, don't do this. You're not doing this in order to receive some portion of this worldly life. This is your commission. This is your job. This is what Allah is ordering you to do. So you have to do this. And with your Lord, be patient. And for your Lord, be patient. Meaning that as he begins to spread the message, things will come to test his, to test his patience. Uh, the disbelievers will try him. Uh, Shaitan will try to deter him. Things will come to deter uh, Prophet Muhammad's uh, confidence and his message. Palindrome, that's what it's called. Yeah. I was about to say pantomime, but I knew it wasn't pantomime. I knew it was something that began with a P. Alhamdulillah. Um, that basically, the um, that he has to be patient with the trials and struggles that will be coming on in the, in the coming, in the coming uh, days and, and weeks, months, and years of the message. Okay, so after this, after Surah Al-Muddathir came, the revelation after that brief pause, and some say that that pause was to give the Prophet some, some, you know, relief from that first, you know, from the burden of that first message of the the first five verses from Surah Al-Iqra coming down, coming down on him. So some say that this was an, a time for him to have some rest and recuperate, and now you know, that he's he's ready. The message started coming frequently after that, frequently and strongly, over and over and over again, as uh, he began to spread the message more. But in, it's still in the beginning, Prophet Muhammad kept the, the message within his close friends and family. And now, let's talk a little bit about the different types of revelation that came, well, the forms that the revelation came in. The, the revelation, meaning Jibril, basically came to him in different forms. He came to him sometimes as like a loud clanging sound, like a loud bell ringing, clanging sound in his head and in his ears. And that was like a warning that the message was coming. And then he would, he would experience this loud clanging sound. And then after that, the message would be, you know, transcribed in his heart and his mind. He also sometimes came to him in the form of an angel. There's a hadith where Rasulullah came. He was walking outside and he was out, you know, outside the borders of Mecca, outside the city of Mecca. And he looked and it was after the first revelation of, um, of Surah Al-Iqra came, and even after Surah Al-Muddathir came, he looked in the sky and he saw Angel Jibril there, and everywhere he turned, Angel Jibril was still there. So that's one, one, another form of revelation. Then also he came in dreams. Remember we spoke about last time how 
the prophet would have true dreams leading up to re leading up to the revelation, but it didn't stop just because Suratul Ekuda came to him. Even after he became the prophet Salaam, and the message came to him and he was delivering the message, he would still have dreams that were a form of revelation. Remember we mentioned that the prophet's dreams is actual revelation. Our dreams may contain a little bit of truth in it, and Allah knows best, but the prophet's dreams are all truth and it's all revelation. Uh, so for, for us, we can't, make fatwa from our dreams. So we have to be careful about that one. And we have to try to correct our behavior to try to weed out the falsehood and the trickery of the shaitan from our dreams and try to pinpoint the good. And that takes patience and knowledge and also a good character. And Allah knows best. Now with the, um, and also another form that he came to him was as a man. And this is, uh, in a, there's a famous hadith called Hadith of Jibril, actually. It's related by, by Omar ibn al-Khattab. Many, happened many years after, after the beginning of the revelation, but it's still an example where the Prophet was sitting in, was sitting in with his companions around him. And this was during the time of Mecca, before they made the Hijrah to Medina. And a, 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 a man came in whose hair was exceeding black, ex exceedingly black and his clothes were exceedingly white. He went on to ask Prophet Muhammad several questions. He asked him about uh, the signs of the last day. He asked him about what is Islam, and what is Iman, and what is Ihsan. And the Prophet Muhammad explained to him the, the signs of the last day, the actual timing of the last day was the one thing that he didn't know. And he confirmed to him that the one who asked knows no more than the one who was asked, or the one who was asked no more no more than one who was asked. And then the man left, and then Prophet Muhammad said someone out to go find the man. When they went outside, though, the man was gone. And he said, that was Jibril who came to came to teach your religion. So this is uh, proof that Angel Jibril did come to him with revelation, sometimes in the form of, uh, of a man. And we also, also understand that Everything the Prophet says is revelation, just not all of it qualifies as Quranic revelation. But anything he says that he orders us to do is considered revelation from Allah. He doesn't speak of his own mind. Uh, things dealing with the religion. Now, things that are not dealing with the religion, he could have been, he may have been wrong with that or may not have been wrong. But anything dealing with the religion, dealing with Islam, it is, it is revelation from Allah. So when the angel comes to him and asks him about what is Islam and what is faith and what is Ihsan, what is righteousness. These are all things that have to do with the, do with the religion. So obviously, this is revelation. Okay, so going on from there. Now, when Muddathir came, the Surah Al-Muddathir advising him, or actually ordering Prophet Muhammad to get up and begin to warn people or to advise people of Islam, the, the word is warn. But he began to tell people about Islam, but he, he kept it close within his immediate family members and his close friends. So the first people, we mentioned some of them already who became Muslim. We mentioned how the first person, of course, was Khadija, his wife, and then the first two people after that were the two young men who lived, well, they're boys, actually, the two boys who lived in his household, Ali ibn Abi Talib and Zayd ibn Haritha, uh, they, they both accepted Islam. And then the next person to, the first adult male to accept Islam was his best friend, Abu Bakr. Now, we're going to go over the companions in just a second, but I just want to go through uh, this beginning. Then we're going to talk about some of the early companions who accepted Islam. Baba Bakr was the first person to accept, the first adult male to accept Islam, and he spread the message amongst, he was one of the main proponents of Islam in the beginning. Uh, Abu Bakr was fairly wealthy, he was well respected, he was a historian, and so when, not in the beginning, but later on when the persecution against the Muslims came, he was protected because of, he, he was protected to a certain extent, he still received some persecution, he was still persecuted also, but he received much less persecution than, say for instance, Bilal ibn Rabah, who was a slave, and Sumayya, and others who were of, of the lower levels of, 
lower classes of society in Mecca, they received horrible persecution. But he was protected from a lot of it because of his status and his wealth and his uh, his knowledge in in um, in Mecca. As I mentioned, these first three years, the the message was fairly was kept within a small group of people. And so actually in the first three years, only about 40 people, according to most scholars, actually accepted Islam. So they didn't, it wasn't a big rush. And so three years of 40 people, you're talking about somewhere a little bit over 10 people per year accepting Islam, you know, if you want to average it out. And a lot of those best how they actually came. But these first four people, one of the main proponents, as we mentioned, was Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr was, he was a member of the merchant class of Mecca. He was a wealthy merchant. He's a, I feel he's a very wealthy merchant. And he spread the, spread the message to other people, other merchants around, other merchants who he worked with and whom he knew. And many of these, of these people who he spread the message to, we know, we know the names of famous, famous sahabas, famous companions who will later on become, you know, you know, symbolic and very important figures in the in the spread of the message of Islam. Uh, some of them include Uthman ibn ibn Affan, whom we spoke of last time, who was uh, a son-in-law of Prophet Muhammad Also, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, Sa'ad ibn ibn Abi Waqas, Talha ibn ibn Awam, Zubair ibn Alham, Talha ibn Ubaidullah, and then. Um, Okay, so those were the merchants, but there are other people who we spread it to beyond that. Some more of the first early companions were also included, Bilal ibn Rabah. He was a slave, and most people are familiar with the story of his, of his torture and everything, but he was Muslim long before he actually, they actually found out and began to persecute him. So he was still one of the first people to become Muslim. Also, Ubaidullah ibn al-Jarrah, as well as Sa'id ibn Zaid, as well as, as his wife, Fatima ibn al-Khattab, who was a sister of Omar ibn al-Khattab. By this time, Omar, Omar was not Muslim as yet. And there are others. Um, I'm going to go through the stories of some of the more famous ones right now. Abu Bakr was roughly the same age as Prophet Muhammad wasallam. He was the father of the Prophet's future wife, Aisha radiallahu anha. Uh, Abu Bakr, I believe, is about two years younger than the Messenger of Allah. And maybe two years old. But I believe he's two years younger. But in any case... Uh, Abu Bakr was his closest friend and his closest companion, and he was with him from the beginning, basically, after, of course, Khadija and Ali and Zaid. Abu Bakr was with him from the beginning all the way through to the end. And he was the first Khalifa or ruler of the Muslim world after Prophet Muhammad And his importance to the Muslim world and to the Islam in general cannot be overstated. After Prophet Muhammad saw him, he is probably the most important individual in the, as far as figures of Islam. It will have to be Abu Bakr. Where now for Abu Bakr, after Abu Bakr became Khalifa, uh, the many different parts of the Muslim world rose up against, uh, basically revolted against the Muslims. They committed riddah. They turned against Abu Bakr and refused to accept his leadership, or just turned against him completely and threatened to to invade Medina. And Abu Bakr, by the you know with the help of Allah, was able to put down this revolution and take and, and solidify control of the Muslim world. But even before that, he was constantly spending his money in the, in the, in the um, service of Islam. He spent his money to free many, many of the slaves who, ex, who had accepted Islam and were being persecuted. Uh, Bilal is the most famous of them, but he was not the only one. The other people whom Abu Bakr freed or purchased, he purchased their freedom, bought them, and then set them free after that. And during, um, uh, in the Medina period, he was, 
foremost in most of the battles, including the Battle of Badr, uh, Battle of Hood. Uh, Abu Bakr, once again, his will he'll be repeated. His name will be repeated over and over and over again as we go through this class. There's no way to overstate his importance. And because uh, after Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he's probably the most important figure in in the history of Islam. Then we have also have we spoke about Uthman Saad ibn, ibn Abi Waqqas. He was one of the also one of the uh, first companions, part of that merchant class. Talha and Zubair, they were two good friends, and Abdurrahman, Talha, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, Talha, Zubair, Saad ibn Abi Waqqas. These four men were all part of the merchant class, but all of them were in their twenties, or maybe not even having, perhaps not having, had not even reached their twenties as yet. They were very, very young men. So if Abu Bakr and Prophet Muhammad were in their forties, these young men were roughly twenty years younger than them. He's giving mm-hmm. the, um, an idea about the age, inshallah, so to give you a better perspective of, of it. So they were not even, you know, they were they were not fully fully adult men as yet. They were adults, you know, from a song point of view, but they had not reached, you know, their their forties or so, and they were young men who accepted Islam almost immediately after Abu Bakr brought it to them. Uh, Ubaidullah ibn Abu Abu Ubaidullah ibn Jarrah, he was also one of the early companions. He accept he his father was actually a monotheist. He was. His father was actually a monotheist who, let me make sure I got my, let me make sure I got my history right. Yeah, he was, his father was actually a monotheist. And I think that's, let me refer, let me go back. I think I was actually, Said ibn Zaid, his father was a monotheist. Said ibn Zaid was once again one of the first uh, companions. And he was married to Fatima ibn Khattab, who was the sister of Omar ibn Khattab. But Ubaidullah ibn al-Jarrah, he was one of the ten people promised paradise, along with most of the other people who we mentioned already. And during the Battle of Uhud, he was the one who used his teeth to pull out the the um, the chain links that had been smashed into the Prophet's face. So he pulled them out. Of, he pulled them out of his face with his teeth. So we we mentioned most of the the what's it called Bashar uh, Bashar the ten promised paradise. We can go through them now. And we'll go through them in order of importance or prominence. Now, Abu Bakr, Omar, who hasn't been mentioned yet, but he was one of them. Uthman, Ali bin Abi Talib, Talha, Zubair, uh, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, Saad ibn Abi Waqqas, Abu Abdullah ibn al-Jarrah, and Said ibn Zaid. These are ten people who were promised paradise uh, in, in a famous hadith by Ibn Tirmidhi, um, by Ibn Tirmidhi, Ibn Tirmidhi's um, uh, Sunnah, uh, Book of the Sunnah. And this, the hadith has been rated as Sahih, so it seems to be, a, well, from what I know, seems to be an authentic hadith. So it's good to, to know these, these uh, ten men's lives. It's also good to know that they weren't the only people who were promised paradise. You know, there are other, other companions who were also promised paradise. Bilal, for instance, he was also promised paradise. He just wasn't mentioned in this hadith. But there are several hadith from Prophet Muhammad so indicating that Bilal ibn Rabah, ibn Rabah would be one of those who would enter paradise. And Allah knows best. All right, so now we've covered most of the early companions. And we also, so, okay, we, we covered most of the early companions. And we can go through their lives uh, to a certain extent. Uh, just a, a little bit about their characteristics. Abdurrahman ibn Auf was very wealthy. He was... A very astute businessman, one of those people who a lot of blessed with being able to always find a way to earn wealth. And his story will come up uh, later on. 
one of the most important things about him, he was the one who judged the election of Uthman to the Caliphate after the death of uh, Omar, Omar bin al-Khattab. He was the one who judged that election. Also, Abdurrahman ibn Alf, he contributed a whole lot of money to, to the cause of Islam. Uh, he has a famous story when the Muslims first uh, migrated to Medina. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam paired off all of the the, mig- the immigrants from Mecca with one of the Ansars from Medina. He paired them off like a, in a form of brotherhood. It's a famous hadith where the Ansar who was paired with Abdurrahman ibn Auf, uh, when they came to his house, the Ansar said, you can take half my wealth. I have two wives. Pick whichever one you want the most. I'll divorce that one and you can marry her. And he you know, basically would want to give him everything. But Abdurrahman ibn Auf said, may Allah bless you and your family. Keep what you want. Just show me the marketplace. And then he did that. And within a few weeks, he had generated enough money to uh, pay for the dowry or the mahr to marry a to marry a woman, and he was able to get married. So, Abdurrahman ibn Alf was just a very astute businessman, and showing that you know that wealth is not necessarily haram in Islam. It's like all blessings from Allah is how you use it. You know, it's and if your life is about attaining wealth, and obviously that's haram, that's wrong. But just attaining and want and wanting to have wealth to use in the service of Allah. That's not necessarily a bad thing. People mess up, however, when they make the attainment of wealth or attaining wealth their one and only priority. When they make wealth their God, make wealth their their deity, and they're worshiping wealth to the point where they're happy if they have it and they're sad if they don't have it, and everything in their life revolves around earning wealth. That's when wealth becomes a problem. But trying to have wealth in and of itself is not haram, but we should be careful about how we use it. All of us are not going to be like Abdurrahman ibn Auf. Zubair and Tonha, as I mentioned, were two close friends, and they were both warriors. They fought in pretty much all the major battles. I'm trying to think of anyone that they did, that they may have missed, but they were very, very close friends, and they're mo- they're mostly known, and they, I say mostly known, but they both died in the Battle of the Camel, which was which happened after the death of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu which was a battle uh, between Ali on one side and Talha, Zubair, and Aisha on the other side. And one of the not-so-great moments in Islamic history, but they died in that battle, and they died at the same time, actually. So um, people say they died at the same time or with or very close close in t- proximity to each other. And Allah knows best. Abu Ubaidullah ibn, ibn al-Jarrah, he lived to be about 70, 80 years old. He was also one of the commanders of, of the Muslim army after you know the death of Prophet Muhammad and the Islamic uh, empire began to spread. He was one of the major commanders. Uh, he conquered many, 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 many of you know uh, other people. Basically, he conquered many other uh, towns and won many battles for the Muslims. Eventually, however, he was in Syria. Uh, as the Muslims had conquered, he was in Syria, and a plague came, and it was during the Caliphate of Omar ibn al-Khattab. And the plague came, and based on hadith from Prophet Muhammad I'm saying that when you are in a city with a plague. Or if you hear of a city that has a plague in it, do not enter it. And if you are in it, do not leave it. Basically, if you're outside of it, do not enter it. Do not, when you're in, in it, do not leave it. And so he stayed within that. He wound up dying from the plague. And he was roughly, he was somewhere close to his eight, close to 80 years old when he died. Uh, Bilal, we know his story fairly well. Bilal was a, was a slave from Abyssinia, which was Ethiopia, which we now know of as Ethiopia. He was, his uh, master name was... Um, Umayyah bin Khalaf, I think. Uh, Umayyah bin Khalaf, something like that. And he kept his Islam secret for a while, but eventually the word got out. And by the time the word got out, that time 
the Meccans, the Quraysh were persecuting the Muslims, and he was persecuted horribly, almost as bad, you know, one of the worst, worst of all to be persecuted. You know, he was set out in the, in the desert. Huge stones were put on top of him in the middle of the, in the middle of the desert. He was whipped, and but he refused to denounce Islam, refused to leave Islam, even though he, you know, from a point of view and to save his life or to save himself from being persecuted, you know, he had he had the ability to say it, but not but believe what he wanted in his heart just to stop the persecution. He could have done that, but you know, his faith would not allow him to do that. He continued to. to endure the persecution. We'll talk about more about that in the next couple of, hack, couple of classes once we get into the whole persecution of the Muslims. Eventually, Abu Bakr uh, purchased him and then freed him, and Bilal wound up killing his master in the Battle of Badr, I believe. Battle of Badr, he wound up killing his former master in the Battle of Badr, and Bilal went on to live a fairly long life, and and, and um, he was a, we all know he's a prophet more than he was the one who called the Adhan, uh, for Prophet Muhammad and after the Prophet died, he refused to call the Adhan for anyone else until I think Omar asked him to call it. And just for once, he called it. And when everyone heard the Adhan being called by by Bilal, people came out the houses crying because it reminded them of the good old days when they were in Medina with Prophet Muhammad And he was like I said, he was one of the closest companions and was actually one of those promised paradise, but not in the specific hadith that we mentioned. Uh, Said ibn Zaid, his father was a monotheist. He was what we call one of the, um, we call Hanif. He just didn't worship idols. And he eventually, um, Said ibn Zaid was also raised in that same culture uh, of basically a non uh, being monotheistic, not being a polytheist. So when Islam came around, he naturally gravitated towards that because, you know, he, he was already halfway on the truth. He just didn't have a prophet to guide him. But now when Prophet Muhammad came with, with pure tawheed and, and guidance, he was able to, he moved on and, and became a Muslim immediately with, once the message came to him. And he was married to Omar's sister, Fatima. And, you know, there's a famous story, and there's a dispute about whether it's true or not. But later on, Omar bin Khattab, you know, he was on his way to kill the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then someone came to him and said, and why kill the Prophet when you have your own problems in your own family? Saeed ibn, ibn Zaid and your sister Fatima, they're Muslims themselves. And so he went to go, you know, take care of business with his sister and his brother-in-law first. Omar got there, caught them beside Qadan, started beating on them. And um, eventually his sister said, you know, made him feel ashamed for what he was doing and showed him some Quran and he converted from there. And a lot of his best of that story is true. I've heard uh, alternate theories that that story may not be true, and Allah knows best. It is a nice story, though, so I like to repeat it anyway. But Allah knows best if it, if it is actually true. All right, and so that's just pretty much the story of most of the early companions. Uh, not most of them, the, the prominent early companions. There are many more, and you know I, I couldn't study all their all their histories in time for this class, so I just got a few of them that I knew off offhand. Now, for these first few companions... The Quran continued to come down. And for these first few companions, their focus was not on the laws or the Sharia of Islam per se. They were not talking about chopping off hands for thieves and waging jihad and whipping the fornicator and stoning the, stoning the adulterer. All that stuff wasn't revealed until, until the Muslims made the, the, the Muhajirun made the migration to Medina. That's when all those things came down. During this time, the surahs were revealed mostly during this time were surahs that focused more on faith. And that's why we have in the Quran Meccan surahs and Medina surahs. And it's really probably more correct to say Meccan verses and Medina verses because you have some surahs that contain both of them, both Medina and Meccan verses. For instance, Surah Al-Baqarah 
is classified as a Medina surah, but there are some verses in there that were revealed in Mecca. So, and Allah knows best. Another one is Surah Al-Muzamil. Surah Al-Muzamil is one of the first two or three surahs to be revealed. So, um, well, first three or four surahs to be revealed. So, obviously, it was a Meccan surah. But at the end of Surah Al-Muzamil, there's a part when Allah is making, Allah discusses how the people who make who fight in jihad are excused from from uh, spending so much time in in Qiyamul Layl in the nightly prayer. So how can if there was no jihad in the time of Mecca, how can this how can this verse contain how can this sort of contain contain this? Obviously, that verse, which is a very long verse by the way, was revealed in Mecca in Medina, but the rest of the surah was revealed in Mecca. And we need to know it's good to know about the difference between the, the Meccan surahs and the Medina surahs. So you can, I should say Meccan verses and Medina verses. So you can understand the beauty of the Quran, how everything kind of locks in tight together, how we can, sometimes when you give dawah, you may have to deal with people on a level of the Meccan surahs. And sometimes you have to deal with them on the level of the Medina surahs. It depends on the person you're dealing with and why it takes, you know, a little bit of wisdom to know how you're going to give the dawah. Some people, you know, Introduce them to Islam, and you talk about the Tawheed of you know Tawheed and the punishment on the next life and the reward of the next life and the stories of the prophets, the story of all the prophets, alayhim uh, salam. Those are the same things that you need for some people to bring them closer to Islam, and those are all the qualities of the Meccan surahs. And for some people, you know. They need discipline in their lives. They want to know that there's justice for people who do wrong. They want to know that people who, or people, or nations, or anyone who does, who commits evil, you know, what, you know, how do we deal with them in certain situations? How do you deal with person, people who steal from you, people who cheat you, people who rob you, people who lie to you, and stuff like that? How do you deal with building a community? Uh, whether you're in a Muslim nation or non-Muslim nation, how do you deal with how do you deal with people who are hypocrites, people who who maybe friendly towards Muslims but not Muslim themselves, people who are not Muslim and are hostile to Muslims. How do you deal with all these different things? For this, you may, you probably will need more of the Medina verses to talk to them about that because a lot of these things were dealt in the time when uh, the Muslims were in Medina. And you can look at some of the verses of the Quran and usually you can tell by the content and the structure of the verse whether a surah is a Medina or Mecca surah or verse. For instance, Suratul Suratul Rahman. Now that's this 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 disagreement about whether that was Mecca Medina. Suratul Waqiyah. Suratul Waqiyah is what I would consider a classical um a classical Meccan surah. It talks about, you know, the end of time when Allah destroys everything and, and when we all be raised up back to Allah. It talks about the reward in the next life. It talks about the punishment. Uh, it talks about the the good and the good things that Allah has given us in this life. It talks about the reward and the punishment on the next life. The verses are very very small. They're very short verses. It has a very quickly paced rhythm, and most of the verses kind of rhyme in a, in a way. There's a, you know it goes. The Quran is is a literal miracle. So it it flows between different styles, but. The verses of, the, of Surah Tawakia is, in my opinion, a classical Meccan Surah. And we'll go over it. Uh, we'll just discuss some of the verses right now, inshallah, without getting too much in detail. And <laughs> 
Iva rujjatan ardu rajja wa bussatan jibalu bassa fakanat and in these first ten verses of Surah Al-Waqiyah, you see the verses are very are very short. The first verse has only three words. Uh, four, no, three words. Ida waqatil waqia. Three words. Laysa li waqatiya kathiba. Khafi dhaturu rafia. So the verses are very short and they're all rhyming and there's no talk of fiqh or sharia or punishment, hudud or anything like that in these verses. Allah is saying when the big happening happens, Ida waqatil waqia. When, I know that's. Bad translation, I guess, but when the big happening, when the great event happens, that may be a better. There is nothing that can deny this great happening. Bringing some low and bringing some high. When the earth is shaking with a, with a violent shaking. And obviously Allah is talking about in these verses the... The, you know, the end of time, the, you know, Yamun uh, Qiyamah, when everything will end, Allah will bring us all back. And the mountains are broken down, crumbling. They become like scattered dust. And, and uh, then Allah goes on to talk about the people of the right. And you're all made into groups, into three, you're all put into three different groups. Uh, and then he mentions Ashabul Maimana, the companions of the right hand, Ashabul Mash'ama, Wasabikun, Asabikun. And just quickly to explain that very, very quickly, we'll move on with the Sidon. Ashabul Maimana, the people of the right hand, are your typical good people, inshallah, who will make who will make into paradise. The you know, the average good person, good believer who makes into paradise. Ashabul Mash'ama will be those who don't make into paradise, those who go in the other direction. Go, who will Making and who will go to Jahannam, may Allah protect us all from that. I mean, and then the final asabikun asabikun are those who are foremost in in uh, faith. Those who are ahead of who are ahead of even ashabul maimana. They have a level even up above the people of the right hand. And so, um, we're not going to go too much into tafsir that surah, but just giving you an example of it. And also, those three classes are mentioned in other parts of the Quran, including Surah Rahman. But that is a typical. Meccan surah. A typical Medina surah would be something like Surah Al-Talaq, which is the surah of divorce. This surah is about two pages long in the standard Saudi Mus'haf, but the verses are very, very long. And of course, it contains, it's called chapter of divorce. It contains a lot of uh, rules concerning divorce and how you know, Muslims should be Muslims have to handle divorce between spouses and everything like that. We just discuss this is we're gonna do just two verses because they are very long verses. Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Ya Ayuhan Nabi Yu Eva Ton Lakotumun Nisa Afaton Liko Hun Nani Idati Hin Nawa Ahsun Idda. 
واتقوا الله ربكم لا تخرجوهن من بيوتهن ولا يخرجن إلا أن يأتين بفاحشة مبينة وتلك حدود الله ومن يتعد حدود الله فقد ظلم نفسه لا تدري لعل الله يحدث بعد ذلك أمرا All that was just one verse. So you can see how, you know, the verses of, that came into, in, uh, while Prophet was in Medina were much longer. And one last thing, but this sort of, by the way, is giving this verse, and I'm, I'm not going to go into the second verse like I wanted to. This one is long enough. It's basically, oh, Prophet, when you Muslims divorce women, divorce them for the idda, for their waiting period, and keep count of the waiting period, and fear Allah, your Lord. Do not turn them out of their, out of their houses, nor should they leave unless they are committing a clear immorality. As they've, they've committed some clear form of immorality, basically meaning zina, then they probably should leave their husband's houses. And those are the limits set by Allah. Whoever transgresses the limits of Allah has certainly wronged himself. You know not, perhaps Allah will bring about that a different matter. And there's more beyond that. So Allah gives the rules of divorce, some of the rules of divorce in this verse. They also mention in Surah Nisa, and I believe in Surah Tabakara also. But he's giving you an idea of a Meccan verse. That one verse, which is pretty long, was longer than all the all the ten verses we mentioned from Surah Waqiyah. So this is a classical, you know, typical uh, Medina verse. Just, you know, help me understand a little bit better, inshallah. I mentioned the during this early period, this first three years that the that the um, that the message was going out, the Quran that came down to the, to the Prophet Muhammad were mostly about verses that dealt with faith, with the next life with the reward and punishment of the next life and worship, and really solidifying their tawheed, the concept of Islamic monotheism with the Muslims. And that's because these people and the scholars have, and this is most, most certainly the truth, the reason why these verses dealt with these things was because these first 40, 40 individuals, and actually all the Muslims, who all the Muhajirun, even though some of them came after this first 40, but these first 40 were some of them, except for the, a few exceptions like Omar, who was not one of the first 40. But with the exception of that, I take that back. There's disagreement whether Omar was the first 40 or not. But he didn't become Muslim in the first three years. But I'll, I'll get into that later with Omar. He's a, Omar is, is definitely a dynamic character and one that deserves a little bit more discussion because his, his life was a truly dynamic one, a truly interesting one. And there's a reason why his name is probably one of the most popular Muslim names after Prophet after Muhammad um, Omar is probably the most popular Muslim name. Yeah, maybe Ali too, but that's a different story. But the reason why the why these early Muslims needed this this and uh, these early verses like this, which were solidifying their tawhid and teaching them about teaching them about teaching them about the next life and about the reward and punishment of Allah and the the reality of the grave was because they were going to be the foundation of Islam. They're going to be the foundation of the Muslim world. And fr and truth, truth be told, from these first individuals, all of our, pretty much all of our knowledge comes from, comes from them. I mean, there are some, you know, differences. There's some things that came from the Ansar and some of the later Muhajirun. But, you know, the spread of Islam was propelled by these first, these first 40 individuals. And without them, it would have been a very different picture, and Allah knows best. So it's important that their faith and their understanding of Islam, their tawheed and their knowledge of Islam was solidified. And so during this time, the Muslims did pray. 
uh, but the prayer was not as we have it now. The formal prayer came much later. It was developed even on into Medina, but it came after Al-Isra'u'l-Mi'raj, which, which is the, the, um, the night journey and the ascension. And that happens many years later from what we're talking about right now. But that's when the you know the prayer became more formalized after that point. By this point, the Muslims still did pray, but all the prayers were pretty much two rakats of prayer. They didn't have you know four for the Lord, four for Asr, three for Maghrib, and all that. Everything was pretty much two rakats of prayer at this point in time in the first three years of Islam. And so they did pray, but all the rules had not been set down. And a lot of those best how they fully prayed. I don't know. I don't know if they said Tashud or not. Um, sort of Fatih. I don't even think had been revealed as yet. So. A lot of these things, you know, a lot of things we have now, know that as prayer now, weren't, weren't, weren't available at that time. So, but they did pray as far as ruku and bowing. They did do all those sort of things, but became more, formal, more formalized much later on. Now, also during this time, the first three years were also done in secret. You know, there wasn't much talking to, there wasn't much spreading of Islam outside those who were willing to get it. You know, and even despite the fact that they try to keep things secret, word eventually le- leaked out. This is, you know, people will talk, and word eventually leaked out that uh, Muhammad's Muhammad got some new religion going on, and he got followers. But in the beginning, these first three years, the leaders of the Quraysh, the leaders, the Meccan tribal leaders, and the chiefs of the Quraysh, they didn't really worry about it that much. They weren't concerned about whether. Um, they weren't concerned about people becoming Muslim. I mean, a few people were persecuted, but for the most part, you know, they weren't. it wasn't really a big deal to them. They thought that, you know, the whole lot of people came through Mecca preaching things and, you know, the whole lot of philosophers, whole lot of religious men that came through. And they thought, eh, Muhammad just one more religious guy who has a message he wants to tell. That's all. And so that's, they didn't really concern themselves about it at that point in time. And there wasn't much persecution against the Muslims. It wasn't until the message became public and people began to see the potential for Islam, that things began to change. And we'll get into more of that next week, inshallah. After these first three years, however, it became time for Prophet Muhammad to spread the message even further beyond just this initial group. And Allah ordered him to take Islam beyond just this first initial group and then to his... his um, Allah should basically told him to spread out beyond beyond his beyond this this initial group. And Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam took his first steps of doing this and is spreading it to his extended family. That means the the tribes of uh, um, uh, the the clans of of um, Hashim, his his own clan, and Abdul Muttalif, which was like a, a brother clan to his to his clan. So he began to first spread the message to the people within that clan. And for the vast majority of them, most of them, you know, refused to accept. The vast majority. Abu Lahab, has, as you know, was his un- one of his uncles, part of the Hashim clan, was very strongly against him. But even Abu Lahab was not yet really, really, you know, being evil to him yet. He's just called his, his, his nephew crazy, said he's a fool, and pretty much ignored him. But for the most part, no one really accepted, no one within his family accepted the message of Islam. Um, except for you know the close members where he mentioned of his wife, his wife, his daughters, and and um, and the two boys living in his house. In his house, eventually though, once the message been on beyond that though, uh, his his clan did protect him. Once people began to really 
ramp up the persecution. But in the beginning, it wasn't really a big deal. And his clan said, okay, Muhammad got a nice message here. Let's just go on about our business. And nobody really paid him much attention. It wasn't until he made a public proclamation on the mountain. We all know the story. He went to make a public, a public proclamation of Islam. And during this time, uh, whenever someone, whenever one of the chiefs of Mecca had to make like a big announcement to everybody in Mecca, they'll go to this mountain and start calling out all the tribes by name. Oh, Banu, oh, Banu, Bani Makhzum, oh, um, Bani Hashem, Banu Abdul Muttalib, oh, oh, Bani Tayin. They'll call out all the names of different clans and the people will come and then they'll make their announcement. And so, Prophet Muhammad, in order to spread the message to as many people as possible, he also went to this mountain and began to call out all the tribal, all the names of different tribes. And, you know, they came to gather around him. And then he asked him the question, the famous question, if I were to tell you that an army is coming behind this mountain, would you believe me? And they said, of course he would, because you're Alameen, you're the truthful. We, we know you, we trust you. You never know you tell a lie. And then he said, well, I'm telling you the truth now that I'm a messenger of Allah. And I'm warning you of a punishment from Allah if you do not worship Allah alone and leave the idols. And people were just like, okay, just stunned. Like, you know, nobody really said anything. They didn't know what to say exactly. Nobody really said anything except for, of course, Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab was the one who broke the silence. And he said, you called us out here for this? This is what you called us out here for? May Allah. And he said, he said, uh, he, he said, may Allah. He said, curse your hands. Or something. He said, like, he cursed Prophet Muhammad. He said, curse your hands or may you be destroyed. And... After that, that came uh, that came the surah of surah to Lahab. Now Allah actually rebutted, rebutted his his curse and threw it back upon him. And Allah says, Allah says the first verse, Cursed are the hands of Abu Lahab, and may he be cursed also, and curse him also. Cursed the hands of Abu Lahab, and curse him also. And so Allah basically curse Abu Lahab after that uh, first initial when he first cursed his, his nephew when he gave him the message and that was the beginning of the onset of the persecution against the Muslims and we'll get more into that next week inshallah now we're coming towards the end of the class and I'm going to leave a few minutes open for questions uh, before going into the questions however you know I just want to you know I Spread a, just give it a little concern about seeking knowledge, and how do I preface this? You're going to come across many people who seem to know it all, or seem to have, you know, solid understanding about Islam. So you got to do it like this, and you got to do it like that. And you know, Allah knows best how much they really know. Even with me, I wouldn't suggest you take everything I say with you know. Uh, you know, without verifying it. If I say something that you're not sure of or that doesn't make sense to you, by all means, you know, correct me. If you, you know, if you know that I'm wrong, correct me by all means and bring, you know, search other proof, ask other people who know more than me. And I consider myself a student of knowledge. I am trying to, may Allah, you know, keep me sincere in this and continue on this path, trying to always extend and expand my knowledge of Islam. What I've noticed, however, you know, there are a lot of Muslims who, 
don't seem to want to expand their Islam, yet they they want to give fatwas, or they want to talk about Islam as if they got it all down pat. Like, I understand this is just so easy. And that's a very dangerous, dangerous mentality and mindset to have. For instance, um, just this weekend, a friend of mine who, you know, may Allah reward him and may Allah have mercy on him and forgive him, He's not he's not very knowledgeable. I mean, I'm not very knowledgeable either, but you know, he's not he has not yet learned to read Arabic, okay? That's his his love knowledge to the point where he cannot yet read Arabic. Yet he had read a hadith and it is an authentic hadith stating that and this goes back to this I don't know if it's I think it was in my actually the basic Islam class where someone had quoted a, a hadith to his sister in English and had her thinking that her prayers were invalid. And this echoes again now in this past weekend when this brother, once again, may Allah have mercy on him and forgive him, you know, he, he knew another Muslim who owned a dog, but the Muslim also owned a business, a junkyard. And he told the brother, based on a hadith, which is an authentic hadith that says that only reason a Muslim, are, a Muslim is allowed to have a dog is to for hunting, for protecting a farm, and for herding sheep. And so he took this hadith literal, saying that he cannot have, that he should not have this dog for to protect his his property, his junkyard, and the only reason, and if he does want to have it, what he needs to do is teach his dog how to hunt, and then he can have it. First of all, that is trying to create a loophole in in the Sharia, which is very, very, very dangerous. Allah talks about how the Bani Israel, when they were commanded not to fish on Saturdays, they found a loophole. Also, they cast a net on Friday and come back, and will come back on Sunday. And they would pull fish out. So we weren't, we're not fishing on Saturday. So technically we're, we're obeying the law. And Allah was angry with them a lot with that. He punished them for, and he punished them for that. Islam is not, you know, court law. It is not, you know, U.S. code or British common law or anything like that. You, look, it's, you don't look for loopholes and stuff like that. This, that's a very, uh, to see people trying to find loopholes in Islam is bewildering. It, like Allah doesn't know what you're trying to do. Allah doesn't know your heart. And Allah can't, that you're going to outsmart Allah by find, trying to find a loophole in Islam. That's crazy, crazy talk to me. It's, and there's people who, who appear to be sincere in many ways, but crazy that you're going to try to find a loophole. Furthermore, you're trying to find a loophole for which no loophole is needed. Because understanding that fiqh is, there's a difference between the purpose of Islamic law that is fiqh and what we know as secular law, you know, U.S. law, British law, whatever law you want to go by. There's a, there's a difference in the purpose behind them. When it comes to, I'm, since most of us are in the United States and I'm familiar, more familiar with American law, U.S. law is about upholding the rule of law. Therefore, if a law is unjust, if it is according to the rule of law, it's the law and there's not much you can do about it. So it doesn't matter whether the law is just or not, which is why at one point in time, something that was unjust, such as segregation or slavery, or I have now even, um, you know, marriage between people of the same gender, you know, these things, it doesn't either, if, if it's according to the rule of law, it's allowed, and that's all that matters. Justice doesn't matter. But fiqh is not so much, and especially the sharia more, more, more specifically, is not so much about upholding the, the word of the law. It is about justice. Allah's law, the law of Islam, is about justice, which is why an absolute written law, such as um, the prohibition of eating pork, it can be overruled if 
out of necessity, a person has to eat, eat pork. You know, this is where Islam, justice is more important than the actual wording of the law. And that's why you have Sharia and then you have Fiqh. And a quick understanding of the difference between them. Sharia is the written law that we find contained in the Quran and the Hadith. This is revealed law, sacred law, set in stone, cannot change. The Quran says pork is haram. Quran says alcohol is haram. It says, um, you know, so many things are haram or permissible that they have to do, we can't do. It's there, it's written in stone, we cannot change it. Fiqh, however, is taking these laws that are in Sharia and applying it to our current life. So things are going to come up in life. Our life is much different now than what it was in time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And everything that exists you know, now certainly did not exist back then. The Sharia gives us broad guidelines of how to handle things, of how to make laws. But we have to use fiqh to derive at different laws for our current situation, whatever society or culture we live in. Going back to the dog example, the brother's talking about the dog. He was, I, asked, I asked him, well, what about somebody who, who's blind, who needs a seeing eye dog? Are you telling me that they can't have a dog? <laughs> you know, does that really make much sense? And all you can say, well, that's what the Hadith says. And that's an example of, of wrong, you know, of, of applying the Quran, apply, applying the Hadith based on, A, English translation, which is really foolish. But then even beyond that, to apply it on, to apply, try to make fatwa based on not having enough knowledge. And so, and also I received, you know, I also, I know people who have become Qur'an, as they say, or only want to, only want to live Islam according to the Qur'an and want to just discard the hadith, you know, and they, you know, they tend to look down on those Muslims who use the hadith. And this is, once again, people who don't have that much knowledge, but based on what little understanding that they do have, they have decided that the hadith are unreliable and, you know, they're, they're, they, they contain, the, they held the same position as the Bible or the books of the, of the people of the, the scriptures of the people of the book, you know, that has the same reliability. And so they, they, try, they focus on just the Quran and they want to live their life just according to, according to the Quran and nothing else. And this is, once again, a danger because it's not like the people who are doing this are exceptionally knowledgeable people. You know, there's the people who don't have much knowledge, don't speak Arabic fluently, and yes, they're making these broad, sweeping judgments about, you know, Islamic knowledge and Islamic culture, and I hate to use Islamic culture, it seems so weird, but, you know, Islamic knowledge and Islamic life in general and the life of Muslims means broad, sweeping judgments. And that is wrong. I mean, to say that you're going to come in and just, you know, change over 1,400 years of Islamic studies and Islamic scholarship and you got and suddenly you have it whereas all these scholars were passed all the centuries beyond you before they had it is condescending and arrogant and most certainly when there's arrogance and condescension almost certainly you can bet that the shaitan is in there somewhere people don't get to that level of condescension and arrogance unless the shaitan is is whispering to them and guiding them somewhere so we have to be careful about that now with that being said we have to be careful. I all, you know, you hear about blind following. To a certain extent, we all have to be blind followers until we get to the point where we, we don't have to. Now, I say blind followers, take it with a grain of salt. Take it with an asterisk behind it. Okay, if you are at the point where you can, you know, verify certain things on your own, then by all means, do so. But for the average Muslim, 1.5 billion Muslims, 1.4.999 of them 
are going to have to follow some sheikh or scholar because most of us do not have the knowledge to come up with these things on our own. So if we want to know a fatwa about something, we have something that comes up in our life, can I do this, can I do that, this premise, we're going to have to ask somebody who knows more than us, and we're going to have to take what they're saying because <clears throat> we won't have the knowledge to do anything better. So to a certain extent, you know, the average Muslim will have to do taqlid, which is following someone, someone who has more knowledge of them, and doing it without too much questioning. And, you know, but the point comes that if you are going to be one of those people who want to learn more about Islam and who want to go further in your studies and want to become more than just the average Muslim, just one of the run-of-the-mill Muslim, then you really shouldn't be doing taqlid anymore. In the beginning, maybe, you may have to do it. But as you go along, though, you're going to have to eventually start verifying these things on your own. And that's where scholars who do taqlid also, people who learn Islam, they still continue to blind follow people who, because this is the way my scholar, my teacher taught me, this is the school of thought I follow. This is this, this is that. And these are people who have the knowledge to verify if this stuff is true, but they still insist on following, you know, one specific school of thought or one specific shaykh or whatever, you know. <clears throat> even though they either refuse to do research to find out the truth or, you know, they just decide it's not, it's not necessary to do so. Now, that kind of blind following is when people lead astray. People can be led astray because now they're following more culture than anything else. But for most of us, at a, you know, at the beginning levels of Islam, we're going to have to blind follow in the beginning. You know, if I'm teaching a, a, new, a basic Islam class, you know, People are going to have to accept the fact that five prayers a day. You can, I mean, I, I could bring you the hadith about it, yes, but I'm not going to bring the hadith on every single, every single recommendation recommendation of Islam. It's just too many things. I can't tell you the hadith about you know every single rule of fiqh there is. It's just too much to there, too much to it. But at some point, people, you know, at the beginning, we're going to have to blind follow and just accept it. But after a while, though. And you'll know when you get to that level because you can. You say, well, let me check it out for myself, and you go and do the, do the research on your own. You'll know when you're at that point where you can go ahead and do your own research or check something out on your own, inshallah, because you'll be able to do it. That's what you want to get to, inshallah. Just wanting everyone to be careful about this because people are being led astray and people are being taught the wrong thing about Islam because, you know, people who have little knowledge are assuming that this, you know, that they got this thing under control. And that's my rant for the day. Any questions about uh, the Siddha class or anything else, inshallah, before we close out? Okay. All right. It appears that that is it. I don't... So next week, inshallah... Actually, next week I will not be available. Um, I don't want to say where I work because this goes on YouTube. <clears throat> but, you know... I work during the daytime next week, but this will be the last time I work during the day up until September. So next week, I probably won't make it, inshallah. <clears throat> but inshallah, after that, I'll be available every Wednesday, inshallah, up until, up until September. And my voice is running out. Yeah, we'll be a Saturday. I don't anticipate anything happening on Saturday. Yeah, I'll be a Saturday, inshallah. All right. If there's nothing else, then we'll close out here. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashadun la ilaha illa anta nastaqfiruka wa natubi ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.